So we stand on the brink of a new year. Let's jump into Colossians chapter 2, where Paul is writing to Christians in, in Colossae and Laodicea who face a, a similar challenge to you. They'd accepted Christ as their Savior, but, but some folks had begun to tell them that, that they could be maybe more right with God or, or closer to God or, or have a better relationship with God if they would just try a few more things. Just just read Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 to us, and there Paul expresses his, his pastoral heart. He has strong desire. He longs for the Colossians to, to understand what he's trying to communicate to him, and he lays out two main themes of this chapter. One positive, one negative. First, Paul desires in verse 4 that our hearts wouldn't be diluted. Now, that's diluted, not diluted, Right? I remember some Gatorade and uh, some, some coolant recently. We're not talking about diluting. We're talking about diluted. Diluted here is, is actually believing something that's not true. Paul desires that our hearts wouldn't be diluted and believing something that's not true, that we wouldn't pursue something that isn't Christ, that we wouldn't believe plausible, uh, reasonable arguments to trust and look for things other than Christ himself. That's the negative theme, the don't theme of the chapter, if you will. And instead, the positive do theme in verses 2 and 3 is that our hearts would instead be encouraged understanding and knowing Jesus Christ, knowing God's mystery, Jesus Christ himself, because Jesus is the treasure. These two themes are wound through the chapter, kind of like the cords of this rope twisting around one another. If I untied the knot here at the end, I probably could take the two pieces of the rope and, and unwind them. I won't do that this morning because, well, this is my father-in-law's rope and, and you don't mess with your father-in-law's things, right? So uh, this morning, as we walk through this chapter, what I want to do is I, I want to look at each of those threads and pull on them separately and we'll tie it all back together at the end. I confess there's going to be parts of the chapter that you're going to say, Rich, we just need to stop and, and, and dive the depths of this part of the chapter. And unfortunately, that's not what we're doing today. That's an invitation for you to go study this chapter and enjoy that, to take your rock and throw it deep down into the depths of the river and uh, see what's down there because it's a glorious chapter. Today, we're taking our small rock and we're skipping it across the river and we hope to hit the other side. Consider today that our hope, our, our, our challenge, our, our approach is just to capture the big picture of this chapter together. So, when we consider how ought we to live, how should we live our daily Christian lives, how should we be close to Christ, how do we go about it? What should we do when we're not feeling close? Should we start looking for new things to try? You know, this morning I actually heard someone on the radio talking about some new things to try uh, as we drove in. I've received mailers about a prayer blanket. That if I just donate to their ministry, they'll send me their prayer blank. Maybe that's what I need. Maybe we should give up certain foods or drinks or uh, give up meat for Lent like others. Maybe we should just give up everything fun and get real serious about our faith. Maybe we need to go the opposite direction and, and give ourselves over to ecstatic experiences and, and find ways to, to hear from heaven, to have new visions. To all of these things, Paul says, no, don't be deluded. Don't be taken captive. Don't be disqualified. You can see the clear don't theme there. He picks up this theme once more in verse 8 and says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul warns us against philosophy and empty deceit. It could be translated 
empty and deceptive philosophy. Now, before we all pick up our pitchforks and our torches and, and march down to the nearest uh, you know, philosophy professor's house, the, the meaning here is pretty specific. Paul, when he uses this word philosophy, is talking about the false teaching there in Colossae. And he actually describes it in two ways. Did you catch them? First of all, it's thinking that's according to human tradition. That was Jesus' uh, complaint his his criticism of the pharisees back in mark chapter 7 verse 8 he said you have let go of the commands of god and you're holding on to human traditions the idea there is is that there's a contrast between a divine initiative and and human design divine command and and human will the philosophy he's referring to here is is something that's that's worldly It's man-centered thinking. It it examines a fact, it reasons, and it concludes all without thought for God, without considering what God is actually saying about the thing. So this philosophy that's according to human tradition is, is secondly also according to the elemental spirits of this world. Rather than being according to Christ, rather than clinging to Christ, they're following spiritual forces that are actually a threat to the Christian community. That's the philosophy that's empty and deceptive. In truth, it, it's, it's how our world thinks today, isn't it? Think about the, the thinking of our world that's devoid of Christ, that, that doesn't follow the teachings of Christ. It looks for pleasure in sin. It looks for fulfillment in sexuality. It seeks its identity in gender. It believes security to be in its 401k. It seeks salvation in political candidates. It searches and searches for ways to get rid of our guilt through, through crusades and protests. But there's no gold at the end of that rainbow. It's empty. It's deceptive. There's no hope in it. Christian, this New Year's, as you start to think towards 2024, what are you thinking you might need? Now, some of you might have some very practical needs, like, hey, I need a new kidney, right? All right, that's practical. Or I need a job, that's good. Like, those are good things. But if we narrow the question down a little bit, and we say, what do you need to feel fulfilled or to be fulfilled in this world, in this life? What is it that you need? Think about it for just a second. If you look through uh, the, the past year, uh, my family would tell you what I think I need is to get rid of ants, right? That's what I need to get rid of. Um, but as you think through your past year, what is it that your life proclaims you need? You say, what in the world, rich ants? I'll tell you some other time. What do you need? Is something other than Jesus coming to mind? What is it that you need to be close to Christ? Paul develops this negative theme further down in verse 16. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So, and then again in verse 18, he goes on, Let no one disqualify you. Here's another one of those don't commands. Don't let anyone disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. So this empty and deceptive philosophy that's in Colossae, this, this teaching that is trying to supplement their faith, has several things going on. We've looked at that human reason that we just talked about, right? But there's also religious ceremony 
that they're trying to supplement their faith with, or, or legalism and, and mysticism and, and even asceticism. If, you're, if your Christianity feels just a little bit off this morning, things just aren't quite right, you know, like you need something. The solution isn't in external rituals. It's not in a, a certain set of deeds or motions that you need to go through. It's not in eating or, or not eating. It's not in celebrating or not celebrating in verse 16. You see, legalism is trying to gain righteousness, right standing before God by, by doing good works, by doing things. A legalist is someone who believes that they can actually earn God's approval, God's stamp of, of approval through the deeds that they're doing. It's like a cheat code in a video game, right? Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BBA. I think that's the old cheat code. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's all right. But it isn't in certain deeds. It's not getting a certain combination of things correct in your life that will make you close to God. The righteousness that you need doesn't come from you. The righteousness, the goodness that counts before God is not our own good works. We're all sinners. We can't pay our sin debt. No, the righteousness that counts comes from outside of us. It comes from Christ. Adding a few more good deeds can't gain that righteousness. Even if those deeds are self-abasing, you don't get brownie points in this world by, by punishing yourself. That's what asceticism is. Asceticism denies worldly pleasure, often with extreme self-denial, as a means of trying to reach a, a higher and higher spiritual plane. Like, I can get closer and closer to God if I just beat the daylights out of my body. You don't become more like Christ by beating yourself with a board or crawling on your knees until they bleed or even by extreme fasts. Nor is our hope in, in mystical experiences as we see in verses 18 and 19. It's a huge temptation in the church today, the American church today. We crave emotionally charged experiences. We want to feel things. In Colossae, it seems that the teachers were encouraging extreme fast to the point that people were having visions, right? But here Paul makes it clear that closeness to God isn't found in visions or audible voices. Starve yourself long enough and you are going to see things, right? Like, it's just a natural phenomenon of what's going to happen. You see, there's a problem with all of these things. When I was a boy, I actually grew up an hour and a half north of New York City. You say, New York City? Yeah, New York City, that place that's got a big city. That, that, that's where I grew up. An hour and a half north of there, small town called Highland. It's in the Catskill Mountains, just south of the Catskill Mountains, really. If you ever visit New York, take a day in the city, that's fine, but then go upstate. It's a beautiful place. Mountains, rivers, waterfalls, beautiful place. Well, when I was young, my older brother told me that the pirate William Kidd actually lived in New York for a little while and buried some of his treasure in New York. That's pretty exciting stuff for a kid, isn't it? You'd be excited, even if you don't think, I, I, you'd be excited. So anytime my friends and I would ride our bikes through the woods or down along the river, that, that treasure, that golden plunder was in the back of my mind. We didn't ever do any serious searching for it, but it crossed my mind more than once as we drove down the trail like, hey, what's under that pile of leaves, right? The answer is nothing. In fact, if, I, if, I, if we ever took a serious search for that golden plunder, uh, how successful do you think I would have been? I wouldn't have been successful at all. 
The truth is that there was some treasure of William Kidd's buried in New York, but it happened to be on Gardner Island, which is about two and a half miles um, east of Long Island. You say, I don't know where Long Island is. You don't need to know where Long Island is. No one needs to know about Long Island. Just think as far east in New York as you can get, you go down to the city. For me, that would have been a 200-mile bike ride. Right? I needed to go straight south to New York City and then head east out Long Island and then take a two-and-a-half-mile swim out to Gardner Island. I wasn't going to find the treasure. My parents would let me ride my bike all over town. I don't think they would have let me do that. This morning, if you're trying to, to, to find a, a fulfillment in life, if you're trying to find a way to please God and to have a right relationship with God, if you're trying to be close to God and you're looking to your good works or, or you're looking to any kind of ceremony, you're looking to the deeds that you've done, you're, you're no closer to the treasure than I was to William Kidd's treasure. So don't be deluded. Don't be taken captive. Don't be disqualified. Instead, be encouraged because Jesus Christ has done it all. He's all you need. You need to cling to him. I heard it said that if, if you listen to some songs backwards, there are secret messages in them. I've never actually experienced that. It might be true. Um, so we're going to go backwards through the passage. Now, I'm not going to read every word backwards. I'm not brave enough to try that with you here this morning right now. That'd be pretty embarrassing. You'd probably laugh at me. Uh, but we are going to go back through the chapter and pull that second thread for a little while and see what Paul has for us with that second thread. You remember how Paul started the chapter? He said in verse 2 that he desired that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He wants them to be encouraged to know Jesus Christ, to lay hold of him, because he is the treasure. Some pursue legalistic rules and rituals, like we saw with eating and not eating and celebrating and not celebrating an attempt to be holy. But Paul writes in verse 17, those things are just a shadow of the thing to come. Jesus Christ is the substance. He's the real thing. The real thing belongs to Christ. Amazingly enough, those who were depriving themselves of, of food likely and pursued those mystical experiences and wanted to have those visions, Paul's uh, uh, way of addressing them in verse 19 says that they're not holding fast to the, to the head. They're in danger of not holding fast to the head, not clinging to Christ from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows with a growth that's from God. Do you see it? Christian, where do you find spiritual nourishment? Where do you find the, the, the things that you need to grow up into maturity in your faith? A tree draws its nourishment from the sun, not, not here in West Michigan, it finds it somewhere else, but it draws it from the sun and, and the nutrients and the water and the soil. Does a Christian draw up his, his nourishment from drumming up feelings and good deeds and having visions? No. The nourishment comes from Christ. It's our connection to the head. It's clinging to our head. Jesus Christ. He's the nourishment we need. He's the author. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of our faith. Jesus said it like this. You'll be familiar with this in John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean. Already you've been forgiven because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me. Cling to me, Jesus says, and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever clings to Christ and and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How well do, do grapes grow when they're cut off the vine? They don't do so well, right? Or how about that, that apple blossom? When you pluck it off the tree, are you expecting the apple to grow? Jesus is our vine. He's our nourishment. He's our source. While philosophy and human reason are hollow and empty and offer me nothing, Christ offers everything because in him, verse 9, in him is the whole fullness of deity dwelling bodily. Listen, you don't need to have a visionary experience. You don't need to have a special vision to find God because he came. We celebrated it last week and hopefully this week too. Jesus came. He took on flesh. In him, you can find the full essence of God. You can find deity. He was and he is God. Hebrews 1 tells us that he's the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the complete fullness of God. And you, Christian, you have been filled in him, in your connection to him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You are filled up to the brim. You are satisfied because you've been filled by and with Jesus, who is all the fullness of deity. We've received full salvation. We've received full assurance and all of the benefits of Christ because we're connected to Jesus. We're in Jesus. You say, what benefits? Verse 11 tells us, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision that's made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him. I just need to take a time out. I say buried. All right. It's my father's fault. Buried with him. All right. Having been buried with him. It's right also if you actually look at that buried. Anyway, moving on. All right. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you're keeping track, in Christ You're complete. You're full. In Christ, you've died, and the chains of sin have been broken. In Christ, you've been made alive, and you're made part of the new creation. In Christ, that's four now, in Christ, you're completely forgiven. Note in verse 13, it says he's forgiven all your sins. There's not like two that are left over. All your sins. In Christ, we're victorious, and our enemy is defeated. Now, in truth, all of those are passive verbs. Some of you take English and know what a passive verb is. Maybe you know from some other language. Uh, I was not very good at English. I learned English grammar by learning Greek, 
right? Because that's how my life worked, which was kind of strange. But these are all passive verbs, which means that we didn't do them. God has done them to us and for us. God is the one at work in all of these things. Now, maybe you say this morning, especially women, you say, hey, like, I don't remember being circumcised. Like, oh. What kind of circumcision is it? It's one made without hands. This isn't a physical surgery. The physical act of circumcision was a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 17. It marked Abraham and his descendants as, as something cut off and, and separate from the world. By Jesus' day, it symbolized, at least to the Jews, as, as they understood themselves, themselves to be a unique and elect and separate people of God. But the physical act of circumcision was never meant to be an end to itself. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God told Israel what he wanted and, and what it was all pointing to. And there was a circumcision of the heart that he was desiring. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that, with the result that, so that, you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and that you might live. This, this cutting, this circumcision of the heart would result in loving God with all of their hearts, with a new heart. Maybe Ezekiel 36's promise comes to mind, a, a promise of a new heart and a new spirit. And that's exactly what Christ has accomplished for you. He's accomplished it not only for men, but for women, not only for Jews, but for all mankind. He has completely saved you. He's transformed you. He's given you a new heart of flesh, a new heart that can love him and does love him. How? When? When did he do this? Verse 11 tells us it was done by the circumcision of Christ. Now, that's not talking about when Jesus was an infant and was circumcised. That did happen, but that's not what Paul's referring to here. He's talking about when his flesh was cut off for you. When his entire body was sacrificed for you on a cross. Christian, when you trusted Jesus, when you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, Paul is telling you that in that moment, you died. You were buried and you rose again with him. Jesus did all of those things, but he brings you in with him and he does it with you. You're connected to him and you participate with him. Hence, when we, we practice water baptism, like we saw earlier, um, when Caleb went down into the waters picturing the death that has taken place and he comes up in newness of life picturing the fact that uh, the, the spiritual reality of what has already happened in our heart. When we trusted Christ, we died with Christ and we rose with Christ. He has made us new. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us and, and to us when we are saved. We who were dead, rebelling and rejecting the true God, God has made alive. He's given us a new heart. He has given us a spiritual circumcision. And beyond that, he's completely forgiven us. When he saves, he doesn't put us in debtor's prison. We don't really have debtor's prisons here in America. But if your wife or, or you like to read old English books, right, like, uh, you, you know what debtor's prison is, right? A, a place where you go and, and you work to pay off whatever debt that you have. God doesn't put us in debtor's prison. He doesn't hand us a shovel and invite us to work our way out. It's not like calling Dave Ramsey and he gives you a little bit of advice and says, hey, good luck to you. If you're here this morning 
and you've never trusted Christ, you can call on Jesus and he promises to pay for and to forgive all your sin debt according to verse 13. Then he takes that that sin debt in verse 14, that unpayable IOU tab, right? Unpayable because the debt is huge. He takes that tab and he has listed out every one of your sins, every sin you've ever committed. And what does he do? He wipes it away. He wipes away every line of our sin debt. It's not like a chalkboard or a whiteboard where like sometimes there's that residue left behind and you can still see what the people said uh, or had written on the board. No, he wipes it clean. And he wipes it clean, nailing it to his cross. The hymn writer had it right when he wrote, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this is my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all of my hope, all of my hope and all of my peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow, no other fount I know. Read the last line with me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There in the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself. Sometimes you hear critics of Christianity complain that it'd be crazy for God to turn a blind eye to to sin, right? Especially those most evil sinners. They'll say, hey, what if Hitler repented just before he died, right? You've heard this. Listen, first and foremost, that's the only hope for any of us. We're all great sinners in desperate need of someone to take action for us. But beyond that, God doesn't turn a blind eye. The debt doesn't go unpaid. God took on flesh. Jesus came as Emmanuel. He lived a perfect and righteous life. And he was cut off. He poured out his blood. His body was broken. All while the Father poured out his righteous anger on our sin. Romans 3, Paul argues that that sin debt wasn't ignored. It was just paid for by another. It was paid for by Jesus. And on that day, verse 15, as Satan and all his minions thought they had won the victory by killing off the Messiah, it was Jesus who triumphed. Through his death on the cross, Jesus won. Satan, the accuser, that's what Satan means, right? It means the accuser. Satan, the accuser, can no longer accuse you. His power's crumbled. Yes, Satan exists. His minions still exist. They still try to accuse you. But you have been forgiven. You have been made right with God. You have peace with God. You have fellowship with God because you are in Christ. Paul's desire for you is that you wouldn't be deluded, that you wouldn't look everywhere else, but that you would look at Christ. That you would see the fullness and and the riches of knowing Christ. So what does all this mean for you here on this last day of 2023? First of all, if if you have never come to the place where, where you have trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior, if you haven't confessed that he is Lord and asked him to forgive you of your sin, listen, the only way to heaven is to trust him alone, to cling to him. 
don't enter heaven because we're good people. We don't enter heaven because we've mixed the right combination of right deeds or good deeds. None of us have been good enough. We're all sinners. It may have been Pastor Nate who first used this illustration. I don't know. If it was, it was a really good one. And so I'll share it again. When I was a younger man, and my boys were all very young, I have four sons, they used to like to cling to my legs. Most of you fathers have had this happen, right? And you walk around the house, and they're clinging to your legs, maybe two on each leg, and you're working with all your might to cling them around, and they've got carpet burns all over their body, but they've got smiles. Everybody's happy. Things are great. Great, great ab workout. I haven't done it in a couple of years. But what a beautiful picture of how we enter heaven. Just clinging to Christ. Listen, there's only one, one person who is worthy to enter heaven's pearly gates. There's only one righteous person, and it's Jesus. The rest of us have no hope but to cling to him. Will you trust him? Will you cling to him? Can I tell you another secret? It's not really a secret. The things you're looking for, even in this world, you know, let alone the next world, the things you're looking for in this world, the things your neighbors are looking for in this world, they can only be found in him. Human reason and and philosophy, they're empty, they're deceptive. One day your neighbors are going to find out again that 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 pot of gold isn't really there. There's a nice rainbow. There's nothing on the end. There's pleasure for a moment. But the longing of our hearts, the, the longings of our souls, they can't be fulfilled in sin. We can only be complete and, and whole in Christ. You know, your neighbor, your neighbor longs to have love and, and relationships in their life. You know where they can find it? They can only find perfect and selfless love in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who gave himself up for us even before we had any thought of loving him. Your neighbor is looking for some way to remove the guilt they feel. We all feel guilt from time to time, and they want some way to to get it removed. How do I get rid of this? What crusade do I go on? You know where the answer is? The answer is in Jesus Christ, who offers full and complete forgiveness of sin. Your neighbor wants peace. Where do we find peace? We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Your neighbor wants some hope of a better day, a better tomorrow. Where do we have that hope? We have that hope in Christ who is coming. Your neighbor desperately wants to feel meaning and purpose in life because what in the world is this if we're just on some rock flying through space with no meaning? They want purpose. They want meaning. You know where we find it? We find that fulfillment in knowing that my days are purposeful, that God has placed me here, and I can spend my life to his glory. Whether we're talking about your neighbor or we're talking about you, what we need is Jesus. What we want is Jesus. In truth, some of us that are in Christ, we forget this. We feel like we need something else. Maybe we need some financial security. Maybe we need some relational fulfillment. Even in our relationship with Christ, we we get confused and we think we need something else. We need something more. Except that's not how our faith works at all. We don't grow when we, we try really hard or when we look inward and try to make ourselves better people. 
It's not as we look at other cultures or other thinkers or or other worldviews or other religions or other ideas. You know, it's when we set our eyes on Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 3 says, that we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next when, when we're made more like Jesus Christ. It says we root ourselves in him as we dig into his word and pray and worship and cling to Christ. You want to grow in your faith this year? You want to be faithful this year? Do you want to be close to him? The answer isn't a million other things out there. Instead, verse 6 says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the positive command of the chapter. We saw a lot of don'ts, a lot of don't commands, right? Don't be deluded. Don't be taken captive. Don't be disqualified. But here is the do. The do is to continue to walk in him. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you declared him to be the Lord of your life, you accepted the truths of Jesus Christ. You received them. And now you should continue to believe it. You should continue to pursue him. You should continue to be connected to him. You need to continue to cherish him. Rejoicing all the while for what God has done for you. Listen, do, do let your roots grow deep and be nourished by Christ. Read his word, spend time with him. Do build your life on the foundation that is Jesus Christ, the only sure foundation. Do you see? You don't need anything else from God. You don't need something more. He has given you everything in Jesus Christ the moment you believed. We need to stop looking everywhere else for what can only be found in Jesus Christ. We don't need the latest gimmick. We don't need to fall into the next fad. Our spiritual walk isn't dependent on making it to that next seminar or reading the next book. Those can be good things, but but we're not dependent on those things. What we absolutely need is to be with Jesus. Cherishing him, rejoicing in him, nourished by him, connected to him, spending time with him in the word. Thanking him for all he's done. Because he's done it all. He has won our salvation. He has broken our chains of sin. He has forgiven our sins. There is no debt left to pay. He empowers our obedience through the Spirit. He is all we need. So as we've worked through Colossians chapter 2, I've been saying that there are two themes, one negative and one positive. But if you think about it, it's really just one rope. If you were to summarize, what would you say? What is this chapter all about? Maybe take a second there to write it if you're writing notes. If you're not, just daydream about it for a second. Here's my summary. Jesus is my all-sufficient Savior. He's all I need. Tonight, make some resolutions. I know I teased, but they can be good. But first and foremost, may we resolve to cling to Christ. 
when the pressures of this new year face us, when we face trial in 2024, when temptation comes our way, cling to Christ. Spend time with him. Hold on to him. Our nourishment comes from the head. And he's what we need. God, I pray that as we walk into a new year, that you'd help us to remember You know our hearts. You know we're always looking for something new, something fast, something easy. Help us to love you. Help us to remember what you've done for us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, we acknowledge we don't deserve any of it. And so I pray we'll cherish it all the more. We pray in Christ's name.